Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dear Reader, which is a podcast about reading and how sometimes it's difficult to read. <laughs> I'm one half of your hosting team, Michael. I'm the other. This is Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi, Michael. Hi. Emily and I are old friends. We go back many, many years to high school times, really. Yeah, grad with you and your blue hair. And basically, like, we bonded over a shared love of reading pretty much uh, immediately, I think. I think so too, yeah. Yeah. So like all throughout university and our mid and late 20s, we would share book recommendations and talk about what had excited us about reading. We shared a bunch of uh, university classes too, so we weren't automatically be reading the same books then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I can remember, were you in the 19th century novel class with me? Shane O'Day taught it? Yes, I love that one. <laughs> me too. <laughs> you were also in my worst English class too. What oh, was that? Do you remember the one where he just kept doing iambic pentameter? I do! <laughs> I do! And I remember at one point when he started to explain feet and meter for about the fifth time, I, I, we looked at each other and we just left and we got coffee instead. Yeah, that was like the most badass thing I ever did. <laughs> As you might be able to tell, Emily and I are kind of goody two-shoes. <laughs> but yeah, we really do enjoy reading for the most part, and our identities have been structured around it since we were kids. But both of us have found reading got difficult. Mm. Yeah, once you're not on deadlines with books anymore. Sometimes it's not easy to read, and that's really weird when you're a bookworm as a kid and you sort of do your English degree or what have you, and like reading is sort of the thing that is so strongly identified with who you are, and all of a sudden you find yourself not able to do it. <laughs> like you can obviously read a stop sign or whatever, but sitting down with a book right it can be struggling or you know even if you read manage to read a few pages if you've got a 400 page book then reading an average length novel can take weeks which is incredibly frustrating yeah exactly and it's very strange um i feel like it would be too easy to blame all the screens and devices in our life like oh like my attention span is so poor now and i can't pay attention to any one task because i can there are other things in my life i can sit down and play like uh, a video game that takes many hours and i don't like have to stop and look at my phone every 10 minutes or i can like go to the gym and do a workout that lasts 90 minutes and you know i'm capable of sustained attention to a task i can listen to a podcast for an hour do you sometimes even two <laughs> and but it's uh it's definitely different well it's a different atmosphere for reading it's a different mood mm -hmm. well why don't you uh talk about how you fell out of reading i've had a couple of peaks and valleys with my reading um like a lot of people when i you know i did a lot of university um did a master's i tried law school that didn't work but when that was done, I was kind of burned out on reading for a little while. And that was the hardest time because, as you said, you know, I grew up Little Miss Good Girl, always reading a book. <clears throat> so to stop reading for months or even a couple of years on end was really very strange, you know, and kind of upsetting. And I kind of realized over the years, like, I would come back to books and I'd leave again. And now I've just kind of come to accept that rhythm. Like, when I was pregnant with my first child, um, I stopped reading entirely, and I don't know why. I blame hormones. But shortly after he was born, I plowed through six books about kidnapping infants in a week. Oh, wow. I, bl <laughs> I blame hormones for that, too. <laughs> 
so yeah, now I've just kind of, st- and I am pregnant with my second and I've read a lot in this pregnancy. So, yeah. so it's not even each pregnancy was different. Exactly. Like there's no, you know, so being pregnant with a two-year-old and having a job, people assume I don't have time to read, but somehow I have. And, uh, it's, I've also changed how I pick books, which is a big help. Um, I used to be very much a book snob, you know, I'd read the canon, um, and books that, you know, won awards, but since then I've been more like, well, what do I feel like reading? Well, part of this is actually a bit of a feminist thing. I've discovered that a lot of books that look like they're just crappy books look that way because they're, they're marketed to women. doesn't mean the writing's not. You're speaking about heavy air quotes, chiclet here. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of chiclet is actually really very good. I mean, some of it, you know, like a lot of dicklet is kind of crappy, but you can, like the book I'm going to talk about later today has a bright pink cover and it's brilliant. So, yeah. Um, So I guess I'll tell my story. Um, So similarly, I was always with my nose in a book when I was a kid. I was an all around strong student, but I really excelled in um, anything that involved writing. So, you know, your history and your social studies and and what have you, but particularly English. And so that's what I did at university. I just went with the path of least resistance and did the subject that I found easiest. Uh, so that led me all the way into a PhD program. And uh, I never really had any any of the valleys that you described. I was like full bore. I had a year off between my bachelor's and my master's. And I lived in Ireland. I probably read about 40 books that year. That was the year I read my first Toni Morrison. I read Timothy Finley's Not Wanted on the Voyage, and I found that so exciting like a lot of really good books that still stay with me and um then i went on to do my grad school where i, I read middlemarch that was amazing and then I, I i had a couple of years off and i had a job uh at a hotel and that was an overnight job so there was a lot of very slow hours with no one else around so i read a lot of books there so i i never fell out of the habit uh and then i started the phd and as uh, you would expect a lot of reading for coursework there. And then the second year, we had our qualifying exams, which involved reading a huge cross-section of English literature, like from Beowulf right up to Salman Rushdie. And that was great. I loved it. Um, I, I, I did not have a problem with this. Uh, but as the PhD progressed from there, I started to feel really constricted because I was writing my dissertation and I was trying to turn myself into an expert in a very narrow subfield. And there's nothing that's going to sort of kill your joy for reading when not only do you have that sort of cultural expectation, oh, I'm a smart, serious literary person, I need to read the canon, but I am working to be a professional uh, scholar of Canadian literature. So it's like, oh, can I read... Um, this Julian Barnes novel. Well, he's a British novelist, so this is really not relevant to what I need to be reading at the time. And that felt so constrictive. Like, oh, I would like to read an Iris Murdoch novel. No, wrong, wrong period, wrong country. Like, uh, it was ridiculous. I, I felt like I had put myself in this straitjacket uh, ostensibly because I loved reading and I wanted to make reading and writing and talking about the books I'd read the center of my life. And all of a sudden, I was constrained in this terrible way. <laughs> and uh, eventually, I became very disillusioned with academia. We had a strike. Uh, the the graduates, uh, teaching assistants and course instructors uh, had a very acrimonious strike. And that really spoiled my attitude towards the university. Academia itself is 
a ship of rats that's on fire and sinking. <laughs> and and basically, I left. I left my PhD program. And I found that reading had become this sort of site of frustration and anger and resentment and trauma. And like, I just, I just could not like, yeah, that's uh, the opposite of how reading is supposed to be. Exactly. <laughs> you read because you want to, and it's supposed to be enjoyable. <laughs> like people, when you boil it right down to it, you read for, I mean, fun is too simple of a word, but often it is fun. Some form of satisfaction or edification, you know, Sure, yeah. You're definitely going to read books because you feel like they'll expand your mind or your experience. And that's, you know, very valuable. But that, like you said, that's satisfying. It's not, but ideally, you know, you read for leisure, you read to enjoy. Exactly so. I can remember uh, my husband when we were first dating. And I, I also write creatively sometimes. And he would say that I write like an English major. And what he meant by that was... <laughs> I will assume that the reader is going to read the whole thing. I, I oh, yeah, because English students, English majors, they're assigned books and they have to read them. It doesn't matter if the first ten pages are boring, because you gotta plow through. And people who read for pleasure don't have that sickness. <laughs> like, oh, exactly. Like there's that's the thing. That's another thing I've learned since leaving university is that life is too short for bad books. If I'm, I mean, I usually give it some time, like 50 pages, maybe a hundred, if I'm not sure. But if a book is making me unhappy or I don't feel like I want to read it, I don't read it. And it's amazing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So like, I don't, I don't think it's good to go too far in the other direction. It's good to expose ourselves to things that are outside of our comfort zone, but definitely. Yeah. I agree with you there, but you're completely right. We only get a very short time on this planet. <laughs> like, yeah, One deranged moment of my life, I figured out roughly how many books I read per year and what my average lifespan might be expected to be and came up with the number of books I was going to be able to read, assuming you know I don't lose my vision or something like that. And it was depressingly small. I don't remember the figure, but it was a, it was not a lot. <laughs> A good reader, because I, I remember I kept a list of every book I read for about six or seven years. I've, I've not been doing oh, yeah, it in recent years. You still do that? I do do that. I, well, I, I usually like note it in my diary kind of thing. Awesome. So yeah, you can actually go back and, and, and graph your progress if you ever have another moment of madness like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I, I kept such a thing. And because I love numbers, even though math and I were, didn't get along as academic subjects, I, I would do that. I would be like, in the year 2006... Um, I read, uh, it took me, um, 6.3 days to get through a book or whatever on average. I didn't ever calculate my expected number of books read for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> no, it was more of a, like, I would like to put some specific numbers on my performance. I mean, it, it's, it's weird. It's, it's kind of how I approach the gym nowadays. It's kind of like, all right, well, let's see how many pounds did I lift this session? And how does it compare to a session six weeks ago? And it's, it's about quantifying your performance as if that was what mattered and not the sort of intellectual and emotional experience and, and betterment, as you say. Like, like, you can read lots of books and not get very much from them. And you can read one book and get so much from it. So the, the way we thought this podcast would work is that each time we get together to have a chat, we would talk about an interesting book that we've read recently. My hope was that this would cause me to actually read some books. 
<laughs> so uh, what have you been reading recently that you want to talk about? I recently finished How to Be Famous by Caitlin Moran. Okay. Uh, Caitlin Moran, this is actually a sequel to her uh, first novel, How to Build a Girl. And it's very similar to her memoir, How to Be a Woman. So there's obviously some kind of thematic titling happening there. Uh, Caitlin Moran, for anyone who doesn't know, <clears throat> is a British writer. Uh, she's in her 40s now. So she you know, was born in the 70s, kind of poor, left home at 18. Uh, her life is relevant because... Her novels are very similar to her memoir. There are some divergence, um, which is the magic of writing a novel. You know, she kind of, you can tell some of these things are resolved the way she wished they were, sort of a thing. So actually, rather than talking too much about her, I'll talk about the character, uh, Joanna Morgan. <clears throat> Joanna Morgan is a precocious teenager. Uh, in the first book, she's 16. This book picks up when she's 19. She's from a poor Catholic family in a bad neighborhood about an hour away from London. And uh, she dreams of being a rock and roll writer. What she really wants is to be very famous and have a lot of adventurous sex. <laughs> <clears throat> those, those are her goals. Okay. Um, and she actually really achieves them through a combination of natural talent and sheer determination. So she's she's kind of the girl, you know, she acts super duper confident. She's balls out all the time, but she's actually a little bit insecure. You know, she's a sort she wears a uh, top hat wherever she goes. It's an affectation that makes her feel like she's a character in a book, which of course she is, but not her <laughs> life. What we find, though, is in her determination to have this adventurous sex life, it often doesn't go the way she wants to. These books are set in the early 90s. Um, it's the second coming of Britpop. So, you know, Oasis and Blur and a lot of bands we haven't heard about over here or that I don't remember. And um, the thing is, men are kind of trash. Yep. So <clears throat> this is something she's running into. The The interesting thing about this book is where <clears throat> it comes to, it's not deeply moralizing. It's not saying women should not go out to have an adventurous sex life, even young women. There's a whole section on why you, young teenage girls should absolutely have sex with rock stars whenever possible. <laughs> but <clears throat> what they're saying is the reason that this is problematic is that men are not respectful. Mm -hmm of the girls and their experience. This one picks up when she's 19 and she has reached the stage in her life where she will walk away from an erection, which as she notes, makes a lot of men really bitchy <laughs> 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 because that, but um, she does have what has kind of become called in the U me too era, bad sex. Okay. Um, she's, she's not raped. She's not assaulted. She's, you know, it's consensual, but she <clears throat> has an experience that she doesn't want to tell anyone about. And because the driving force of her sex life is her need to tell enchanting an anecdotes and have fodder for her writing, that she's not able to come up with a way to spin this in a fun or funny or positive way is what is what really hits home. <clears throat> I'm going to read a very short excerpt where she's kind of trying to think about what happened to her. And this particular sex act is not described until the very end of the book, which is unusual because she does not shy away from the graphics. 
So I'll pick up here just a short bit. <clears throat> the ultimate problem with Jerry is that I can't work out which of the two available truths about our shag would upset me more. One, that I have been sexually naive and shocked about something that actually is perfectly normal. Or, two, that I have actually been badly abused by a massive sex case. Both of those are things I don't want, but they're my only options, which is why I have been resolutely trying to forget the whole thing. So the book is about her trying to forget, squash, and move on from this night of bad sex with Jerry. And in the culture she moves, which <clears throat> she describes as blokey and cokey, again, the uh, Brit pop of the 90s, she is increasingly unable to do that. She keeps running into Jerry. She keeps running into people who have heard about what has happened to her and other women who've had the similar experience with the same person. <laughs> so this is, an, this is a great novel, and this is what I mean about how you're able to, in fiction, have a better perspective. Because I, I feel like Caitlin Moran probably went through something like this when she was a young woman. But through the <clears throat> lens of a 43-year-old, you know, with daughters of her own, she's able to contextualize it in a better way and talk about how, you know, just because a girl says yes or maybe, that's not it. And she's able to tell this story, which is, again, so timely and so universal at the same time, with such humor. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know I've, I've said, said some serious things here, but this is like one of those actually laugh out loud books. Mm -hmm. Like, not like one of those Scandinavian, one, Scandinavian ones where they say it's laugh out loud, <laughs> but you just kind of think to yourself, oh, that's funny. Like, this is literally laugh out loud. She's very Bridget Jonesy in her speech. That's why I really love this book and her writing thereof. Um, I will say if there's anyone worried about a trigger warning, the sex act in question is described later on, but from a point of triumph and resolution, which sadly most people don't actually get. Yes. So I was going to start off by asking you what about the novel draws you to it. It sounds like the humor is really important, but also the... The narrativizing and sort of processing of a fairly common uh, experience of being female in a patriarchy. Absolutely. Um, something my friends and I have been discussing more and more as this Me Too movement gets off the ground and times up are these gray areas. You know, like Harvey Weinstein, absolutely a rapist, obviously. Um, the story about Aziz Ansari a while ago, less clear. Not not to excuse him. <clears throat> and this book really kind of crystallizes that. One thing I've actually been thinking a lot about in this same sort of genre, in real life and in fiction, is the stages of maturity for young woman. Because you don't want to infantilize someone and put all the responsibility on the men. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, I've been listening to a podcast about the Clinton impeachment and Monica Lewinsky. <clears throat> example, Monica Lewinsky was 22 years old, and she was enthusiastically consenting. So it would be a little wrong to say, oh, she was taken advantage of, even though, of course, Clinton was, you know, president of the United yeah. States. A massive power imbalance there, but yeah, go on. Exactly. So there's that. Now, this book kind of, that what I said before about walking away from an erection, that's, I think, the key point 
where a woman is old enough to say, I want to give that man a blowjob, but with a man turns on the television or takes a business call, you need to be able to walk away. That's, and that's something that takes a little while to learn. What would solve this problem totally would be if men would not turn on the TV or take a phone call during a blowjob. It's it's kind of a shitty power move, right? It's <laughs> exactly like the first time she goes home with Jerry, she starts giving him a blowjob. He flips on the TV. She walks out. It's a moment of triumph. It's fabulous. It's a coming of age. You know, our girl has learned a few things. But then another time she goes back, and that's where we run into trouble. You should never go back. <laughs> so, when I was listening to you describe the book, one of the things that struck me was when you're speaking about how the character had difficulty thinking about and processing the bad sex, as it were. You can correct me if, if I'm misremembering, but uh, her sex life had kind of become part of her brand and her job almost. Exactly. She was the girl, you know, the overweight girl with the with the rough accent who wore a top hat and always had a raunchy story for everyone. Right. And it just makes me think of um friends I know. Like I, I have a few friends and some acquaintances who who basically work like in the porn industry or as ex- escorts. And um they talk about what happens when sex becomes a job, and it does a lot of things psychologically which you wouldn't necessarily anticipate beforehand. Um, and yeah, like you're still mechanically able to perform the act, but it absolutely sort of takes the the elevating pleasure and joy out of it. Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> and I think for a lot of women, and this is crystallized here, it's sex becomes what you're doing rather than what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this a few times with, with this character through the two books we follow her through in that she wants the story. And uh, I think there's a line. It's fa- It's a fabulous line where she says, women have some of the sex men are having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As in like men order the sex, like a meal in the restaurant and women can eat off the plate. And that's how she's come to see it, which, of course, is a very unhealthy way to see <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I should say, too, there are some wonderful men, male characters in this book. It's not anti-men. She has very respectful and supportive male friends who are totally unable to – who want to help, who want to be supportive, totally have no idea how to do it. <laughs> Yeah. Are trying. <laughs> well, and from what you've described, it sounds to me like the bad sex is so difficult to handle because she had had good sex before. She has, and she continues to have good sex in this book. Okay, good. Um, which is also great. She also masturbates a lot. Yeah, as any healthy person should, I think. <laughs> yeah, <it's- laughs> but, no, that's, that's, that's very normativizing. Uh, people should just follow their will when it comes to that. <laughs> Exactly. And she is, she is a sexual person. That's why she's embarked on this journey. And, uh, but this, this incident really put, really snaps her back. Like she's had some less positive sex experiences before, but Mm -hmm. this is the first time she, she would usually turn them into a joke or, you know, a funny story. And this one, she just can't, when she can't tell anyone about it, that is, that's a real moment. Yeah. So I'm thinking about how this book 
relates to your tastes as a reader overall? Because for the people who are listening to this, they don't know anything about you and your tastes and and what have you. So are you particularly drawn to literature that deals with timely political subjects or... Uh no, I'd actually say the opposite recently. I think what I'm being drawn to, I've read a lot of heavy and serious books, but what I am really being drawn to right now is humor. Sure. Um, I want lighter things. I don't want to read books about babies being kidnapped right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <clears throat> so, and it's, I don't know if it's me or just the way books are described, but a lot of times when I see the humor tag on a book, I don't actually find it that funny. Yeah. You know, um, I don't. I don't mean to crap on the hundred-year-old man who left, stepped out of the window, and ran away, or however that title goes. <laughs> I'm not familiar <laughs> with it, so I can't help you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's and it's a good book. Mm-hmm. Like it's really fun book. It's an adventure. But everyone, all the critics were like, "Oh, I roared. I was, you know, rolling on the floor." And I, I was sitting there thinking, "Well, that's funny." <laughs> <laughs> so I find I find your reaction yeah. probably funnier than the book. <laughs> <laughs> like it just makes me think of saying like if it's so funny why aren't you laughing like <laughs> yeah no it's a kind of like oh ha neat funny but you know the other person in the room is not disturbed where this is not a book you can read around other people who might be trying to like listen to a podcast or watch the news because you're going to be actually laughing. Do you have this habit? I have this very terrible habit. If I'm reading something and my husband is in the room and I come across a a section that I find particularly charming or amusing, I will read it out loud to him, even if he's trying to concentrate on something else without really any (laughs) warning. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I do that with Twitter, which is bad. Like (laughs) We have what we call the get up and cross the room funny tweets, Mm -hmm. where it's not enough to just like like or retweet it i have to carry my phone over to my husband and point it at his face yep. so definitely have that speaking of twitter i would actually recommend caitlin moran's twitter okay. a lot she's very funny i'm always looking for good people to and follow very witty and she and she has actually been a social commentator uh in london since she was about 18 years old um She's got this. She had a wonderful thread a few weeks ago. I know we're not here to talk about Twitter, but it's a form of writing, I guess, Mm -hmm. Um, where she was explaining how important it is for young people to be able to move to London and afford to get a job and have make enough money to live and get drunk sometimes. Yeah. And how that's a rite of passage that is no longer available in London because, uh, you know, rents are so high and prices are so high. Yeah. So she's she's very much an advocate of the young people, yeah. which is great. Yeah. And it sounds like not just in a serious way, but in, a, in, in the kinds of – it's bread and roses, right? Like it's, it's not enough to sort of um, sustain yourself financially. You also need to be able to have fun and have some leisure time and, and the things that make life worth living. You need to go to bars. You need to get drunk. You need to sleep with rock stars, all this sort of thing, or as close to a rock star as you can get. And uh, <laughs> it's, I'm interested to see how this train of thought continues as her daughters are now getting into their teens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But like she says, like the reason these things aren't safe, mm-hmm. but the reason they aren't safe is often the men involved, not all the men, but some of the men. And so it's a correctable problem in that way. It should be safe for a woman to go out to a bar and listen to a band and get drunk and maybe make some bad romantic decisions mm-hmm. and just laugh it off the next day. Yeah. Like like men do all the time. 
Like, anyways. So uh, why don't you say the title of the book and the author just once more for people listening? Sure. This particular book is How to Be Famous by Caitlin Moran. It is the follow-up to How to Build a Girl, also by Caitlin Moran. And I would recommend the first one first, but it's a, the two of them together are great. Uh, the only book I read this month, <laughs> like this is it, this is the only <laughs> one I can talk about because it's the only one I read, is Chrono Trigger by Michael P. Williams. Chrono Trigger, as some people listening might be aware, was a Japanese role-playing game that was originally released on the Super Nintendo, I think in late 1995. I was 12, and I got the game. I was a fan of the genre. Uh, I Square is the same company that makes Final Fantasy series, which is... If you've heard of any of them, that's the one you would have heard of. And I was a big fan, and Chrono Trigger was far and away my favorite game. It's a time-traveling, save-the-world-from-an-apocalypse sort of game, as you might expect. But it's uh, it has a lot of interesting innovations and variations, both on the genre and in terms of what a video game can be as a narrative vehicle. And this book is part of a series, and Michael P. Williams is the editor of the series, uh, which basically does for video games what the 33 and a third series does for albums, I suppose, where a author will talk about the game and the development of the game and the backstory of the game and the reception of the game, but they'll also uh, have a memoir element to it. So they'll talk about their own uh, experience playing the game as a child and now as an adult and other things. So the author of this book um, first played it when he was about the same age as me. I believe we're only about a year difference in age. And he was, uh, uh, his parents had divorced and he talks about, you know, playing the game and at the time not sort of realizing it, but using it as kind of a coping mechanism for the family situation. And then later on, he uh, does his undergraduate degree. Then he goes to teach English in Japan uh, and he's teaching English in Fukushima. Uh, now he leaves the city before the tsunami and the nuclear meltdown, but only by a couple of years still had ex-boyfriends because as he reveals about 80 pages in, he's gay. (laughs) He still has ex-boyfriends and friends and other sort of emotional connections to the place. And the game Chrono Trigger is very much about, um, cataclysm and apocalypse and because of the time traveling nature and the um fragmented nature of the narrative the apocalypse is uh, the cataclysm has already happened so there's uh, an attempt to sort of turn back the clock and undo it um but there's sort of also a lot of dealing with the emotional ramifications of the unthinkable happening and the book is actually surprisingly elegant in how it deals with that both the I mean, it's a Super Nintendo game. The cartridges didn't have a lot of memory, and they were made for children. Uh, so, like, there's not a lot... I mean, there's a surprising amount of sophistication in the game, but I will stress surprising, because it's not going to be have the same richness of a George Eliot novel. <laughs> but but uh, Williams um, does a good job layering on some uh, richness and depth with his own experiences. So, like, learning little things, like... Um, 
<laughs> there's a great little one of the few laugh out loud moments because it's not a funny book but uh he there's there's a quote from the game and then he talks about it about how the future refused to change this is the depressing ending you get if you fail <laughs> then he counters it with there's this quote what is it um even if i knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces i would still plant my apple trees so it's a quotation that no one knows the origin of but it is commonly uh attributed to Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, and Martin Luther King, the, uh, Martin Luther King. (laughs) Civil rights rights activist. Thank you. (laughs) Civil rights activist was the phrase I was scrambling after there. I was like, do people really need me to explain who Martin Luther King is? And I find it oddly hilarious that Martin Luther and Martin Luther King, who are very different, are are the co-attributed of this uh, quote. Anyways. um, Is Johnny Appleseed a real person? He was. And the reason that he uh, spread apples is not so people could eat them. Um, This is to do with the fact that apple seeds generally do not grow useful apples when they become trees, but you can turn them into cider. (laughs) Uh, Good to know. (laughs) Sounds like something he would say. Yes. I I don't know Johnny Appleseed. Well, I mean, it's more so like you know the necessity of acting as if the world will continue on indefinitely even if it doesn't um right like we're doing right now absolutely yeah <laughs> that's a strong resonance and and williams definitely layers that in, in the the current feeling of hopelessness uh both in terms of the climate catastrophe that's unfolding around us the political situation the undoing of social progress all of these terrible things and how do you cope uh with like making planning for and working for a future even as it as it feels like the world is actively coming apart at the seams Mm -hmm. i had a child in 2016 Mm -hmm. and you're gonna have one in 2018 (laughs) yeah it's going great but yeah and then he talks about how in fukushima um that is an agricultural region but no one wants to eat produce grown there anymore because of the radiation and that they are a region that is known for their apples and the apple farmers in fukushima have you have to keep planting your apples uh, because what is your other option is just to give up, you know? And so nice layering ins like that. Like I, I have now learned that the Fukushima prefecture is known for its apples. <laughs> so it's, it's nice. It's nice for like learning little trivial facts like that, but he does a really good job of taking what is an interesting and provocative source even if people might not expect it to be so because it's a video game from 23 years ago Um, and uh, enriching it uh, with his own experiences. Like, you know, there's, there's a decent amount in there about what it's like to be gay in a small city in Japan. It's because Fukushima is not Tokyo and how, you know, Westerners impression, uh, Westerners impression of Japan is very colored by Tokyo and Tokyo is not all of Japan by any stretch and how, you know, he had to be very closeted when he lived there uh, and things like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a good and interesting book that I found it easy to relate to because I am the same age, give or take. I am also gay and I really enjoyed Chrono Trigger when I was a child and uh, still think of it fondly. Like when I was a precocious 15 or 16 year old, I had a little plan in my mind to write a novelization of the game. <laughs> cute yeah i never went through with it but it's probably good that i didn't (laughs) yeah so i mean i don't by any stretch regret taking the time to sit down and read this i read it on my phone uh which is the first book i've read on my phone and there were there were pros and cons 
Uh, I spend a lot of time on my phone now, and maybe the fact that I'm resistant to the idea that the phone is what spoiled my ability to sit down and read books is because, well, like I am like so many people, more or less kind of addicted to my phone. I think of it more so though as like a cyborg extra lobe of my brain that I carry around in my hand because it's how I speak to other people and it's how I retain certain knowledge that, you know. Oh, exactly. I mean, you and I are both bad at keeping up with people in traditional ways. You know, like I can't remember the last time I called you on the phone to have a conversation. I can't remember Probably the last time never. I had a phone conversation with a friend full stop and it was gone. Yes, but I know I can keep tabs on you and we can keep in touch through our magic phones. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, so I'm resistant to the idea that the phone has destroyed my attention span because, as I say, I am capable of putting it aside to do other things. I can put it aside to bake a cake. I can put it aside to do a workout, but I can't put it aside to read a book. So that's why I reject that thesis. But I am willing to be wrong about that. (laughs) So I thought uh, this was this was at my husband's suggestion. He he suggested that I read this book on the phone, and it was good because sometimes you're out, you don't have Wi-Fi, you don't want to use your data, and um, you can sit down and read fifteen or twenty pages on the phone while you're on the streetcar or while you're waiting for a bus or whatever. Right. So it was really great for that. because I'm well out of the habit of carrying around paper books with me, which is something that I always used to do when I was younger. Hey, I have a uh, story about that because as part of my, you know, book snob days, I would never read a book except on paper. But then when I was reading War and Peace, you know, like you do, <clears throat> I actually injured my shoulder <laughs> from carrying it around in my purse. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so that's when I got a little Koba, which in time crapped out on me. So now I usually take my book if I know I'm going to have a time to read, like if, you know, on my lunch break at work, I bring my book, but on a paper book because my Kobo crapped out. But that's when I fell into audiobooks for the rest of life. Um, because honestly, as much as I love paper books, always will, they're not always the most practical option. No. And the most important thing I realize now is to just get the book into your brain by whatever delivery system. Do you find listening substantively different? Because I, I have not listened to an audiobook. I do enjoy podcasts, but my attention will sometimes wander in and out. Uh, so yeah, yeah, how do you find audiobooks? I find audiobooks great if they are true crime or nonfiction. Okay. Um, I love memoirs as audiobooks. Um, and I cannot recommend highly enough Carrie Fisher's books as audiobooks because she does the impressions. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> you know, of her mother and so on. Her books are fantastic as audiobooks. And uh, True Crime, you know, Anne Rule's book about Ted Bundy, that was amazing. I wound up walking halfway around the city just because I didn't want to stop. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, but I, I find novels not so great. Mm-hmm. Now, that might be my personal thing but for a novel yeah i'm still very much sit with my paper book sort of yeah. person so what i found frustrating about the phone was well a few things one i will immediately cause a certain percentage of listeners to shriek i am a person who underlines things and writes in margins <laughs> i am not <laughs> now i will not do that if it is someone else's book because i will respect their property but if i am the legal owner of the book it is going to get written up <laughs> Uh, part of this is a habit developed because I was a literary scholar and, you know, 
I could never get into the habit of keeping a separate notebook where I like sat down with the book I was studying and uh, with the notebook and I would take the notes in the notebook as I was reading the book. Uh, I was always one who would underline important passages. If a, if a word or a phrase struck me as particularly telling, I would, you know, underline or I would write in the margin. I would, I, I would, uh, if there's something important on the page for whatever academic task I was undergoing, I would put a star on the top of the page so I could easily tell as I was flipping through this page is important. I started. Well, those were books read almost for work. They were task-based books. And I mean, it's part of the problem for me is that work and pleasure were so intertwined that when I got burned out at work, it also burned out one of my hobbies. Of course, yeah. Everything I read, and, and also because one of the things, one of the pleasures of reading is getting intellectually excited about what you're reading. And if your job requires you to translate your intellectual excitement into intellectual engagement and critical production, then it sort of becomes very difficult to un, uh, disentangle any of that. I will say, even though I don't like to underline books, I don't like my books underlined, I always kind of enjoy it when I pick up a used book and there's a few things underlined because you feel like you're, you know, learning a little bit about the person who had it before you. Yeah, it's it's a little message in a bottle. It's great. Yeah, so that was one thing I found frustrating about the phone is that I could not underline passages. I could not write things in the margins. I'm sure there are technological workarounds. Maybe I, I don't understand the app very well. I'm sure there's an app for that. But even then, it's not the same. I guess reading. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe I don't know. It's. It's. I found myself not engaging as deeply and finding it more difficult to remember past things because the act of underlining was also not just pay attention to this when you're writing your paper but also my brain would be like oh that's important and would sort of log it um whereas when i'm not underlining nothing is sort of being stored in permanent memory and it's much more difficult to think about the book after i've read it and uh the other thing was maybe this is just because i don't yet know how to navigate the app well but if i was on page 187 and i wanted to show my friend something on page 174 i had to like swipe 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 which you know it's not a big deal but the ability to gather about 10 pages and turn them at once like that was nice so maybe i just don't know the app well enough maybe there's a way you can like skip back 10 skip back 20 things like that i don't know yeah, in terms of my consumption of literature, lately it's been a lot of library books as well. Um, because, no, it's so weird. I've been such a book lover and such a big supporter of libraries, officially, my whole life, but I never really used them a lot. And now I do. <clears throat> and actually, you know, it's down to the magic of my phone. Because what I do now is if I'm like reading a blog and they talk about a book or some bad this is a bad thing. If I'm in chapters and I see a book I want, I go to my local library's website, I type in the book, and if they have it, which they often do, I put it on hold. And then when it comes in, they just send me an email, and I don't have to browse, I don't have to look, I just run in, I grab it, and I go. And it's free, and I can read it, and it's fabulous. And I think most libraries have that, so everyone should take advantage. But yeah, no, that's my that's my plug for libraries. It also does kind of get you through that reading hump because you're like, well, if I'm going to read this, I have to read it by October 19th, so let's sit down and read this. <laughs> so it's kind of a deadline, but a deadline that doesn't matter the same way. Because if you miss it, you know, you can always get it out again, but it's just a tiny push. 
Oh, I should ta- ask you a couple questions about your book, though, shouldn't I? Okay. So first thing I noticed, which is just a fun coincidence, is that we both picked books that were set in 1995. And nostalgia plays a part because, you know, it's kind of fun to remember when, like, Oasis was still the biggest thing in the world. For my book, in any way. And this video game for yours. Yeah. I don't know if that's just a function of our age. Um, like, uh, Yeah, well, that's it. Because you and I, of course, would have been too young. Like, 95, we were... 12. Yeah. So yeah, I obviously was not going to bars and having adventurous sex. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is actually, um, one of the things I thought about for your book was, uh, to what degree, uh, reading this might've been living vicariously through the narrator or wish fulfillment or, or what have you. Um, Definitely a small part, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, I don't actually want her life. I've never kind of been that sort of person. But it's fun to read about. And it is, you know, nice to remember a time. Exactly. (laughs) And whereas for me, like, Chrono Trigger was very much... I think a game best suited to people say between the ages of 12 and 16, 15, maybe like I haven't replayed it as an adult in part because I'm a little bit afraid to, I have recently played another classic uh, role-playing game from the same era earthbound. And I actually enjoyed that quite a bit, but it was because earthbound was surprisingly strange and funny like, I feel like whoever did the translation work on it uh, was really given a surprising amount of free reign. That's actually something I'm glad I, I mentioned, because uh, a, a section of the Williams book about Chrono Trigger is about translation. And if you are interested in translation as a practice, as an art form, like, literature is often translated. Uh, I had a strong urge to learn Spanish so that I could read A Hundred Years of Solitude in the original even though Garcia Marquez has said that the English translation is perhaps even better. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, but yeah, like the idea that there's a lovely passage in the Chrono Trigger book uh, where he's talking about, well, it's not lovely. It's interesting uh, where uh, there are some fans who dislike the official translation because they feel that it plays too fast and loose and that they want it to hew more closely to the original Japanese. And, they translate a line that a non-playing character uh, says when you talk to her. Shall I lecture about the damage you take in battle? When uh, the uh, official translation is, do you want to learn about damage in battle? <laughs> and one of those is better than the other. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I think I might have even uh, graced up and simplified the the uh, the unofficial fan translation, which is more close to the original Japanese. It was very awkward and stilted and uh, strangely artificial sounding because, well... Idiomatic, idiomatic expressions will vary from culture to culture and language to language. And if you're translating something that's meant to be dialogue, it has to be idiomatic. Of course, yeah. Well, this is, and I've run into this in so many different books I read as I was, you know, laboring through the canon. Like, mm-hmm. I had this one version of the Iliad, which was prose. It was the Wordsworth one. It was like a hundred year old, year old translation, unreadable. Yeah. A more recent one, I breeze through. Mm-hmm. Same with War and Peace. I actually have a favorite Russian translator now, yeah. <laughs> which is a weird thing to say. But this this pair, um, Pavir is the name of the man. I cannot, you know, Russian names, they're impossible. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, they've translated, you know, 
War, War and Peace and Anna Karenina and a bunch of Gogol and some Chekhov. And that makes it possible for me to read and enjoy Russian literature, yeah. which I couldn't the first time I tried. <laughs> I don't think it's strange at all that you'd have a favorite Russian trans, uh, Russian to English translator or translator team. Um, because, well, you can't read the original. So really, when you are reading a translation, you're reading a text that's almost co-authored in a way. Mm-hmm, definitely. Because they obviously made some, they're, from what I understand, controversial. Actually, I don't even know how they're controversial, but your husband once called them controversial. So he can tell you. <clears throat> but anyway, <laughs> but they make it read, a, obviously they're making choices, and the, but those choices make it a lot more accessible. Yeah. So. Well, obvi- yeah, obviously they had to make choices. And balancing needs like accessibility, um, metaphor, poetics, all, all these sorts of things. Like translation is a very difficult task with a lot of spinning plates. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, like this, this the fan translation, which like uh, hues very closely to the original Japanese, because the original Japanese is the real version, and the uh, the translations into English are somehow un- inauthentic because they uh, adapt it to English language and English idiom too closely. That is something I I think the fanboys who have done that, like I've gendered them male. I'm sure some of them are female, but like it, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because. <laughs> Well, I'm going to I'm going to assume that a lot of women will be more sensual, sensible about this. That um, translation involves adaptation, and um, there is there is you should not value the often uh, air quotes authenticity too highly, and it can get in the way of a good, enjoyable, effective, satisfying translation. Um, you need to change things. It's it's adapting it. Anyways, there's a lot about that in in the Chrono Trigger book, and if you are interested in translation as a practice, uh, the chapter on it is definitely worth looking into, I think. Any other questions? No, I think that's it. I, t- I will say this is not something, like, I've never played Chrono Trigger. I don't play video <laughs> When we were texting each other uh, before this, you had to Google Chrono Trigger. When I-, <laughs> I did. <laughs> that's okay. I, I, nothing against video games, just not my bag. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's interesting, I think, that we both kind of went back. Like, we're talking about our reading histories, and for this book, for this this first podcast we both went back to our early childhoods where we were both of course big readers and read for fun all the time absolutely well the same time i was devouring chrono trigger when i was 12 i was reading i blush a little uh the wheel of time series (laughs) which i will not say is good but you know those books are like 900 pages each so a lot of words were passing through my brain (laughs) like yeah i don't know what i was reading when i was 12 probably nancy drew i can't remember Mm -hmm. But I'm sure, I, oh, I was reading Jane Austen because I got caught reading Persuasion in French class. <laughs> and, my pro, and my teacher, who was, you know, a year away from retirement, was like, all right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> One other thing about the Chrono Trigger book, uh, it, it burbled up into my mind when we were just speaking, when I, when I gendered the fans who did the uh, overly literal translation as fanboys. Uh, Chrono Trigger itself is interesting in that it has much more gender balance in the playing characters. So um, uh, there's a party of seven characters that you control, and three of them are women, and one of them is a robot who uses male pronouns but is you know technically yeah. genderless and the that is interesting and the other three are boys era, yeah. 
that if I remember that era, at least for television, it was always like a team of boys and the girl, yeah, the, like the event. Exactly. <laughs> like the, the girl is the token girl. Uh, yeah. And um, how, you know, the, the three female characters are all very different from each other and very well drawn. And because the protagonist who you control, who is the titular Chrono, um, is never speaks throughout the entire game, uh, which is an interesting narrative choice. And uh, because you're sort of, you the player are sort of meant to supply the your character's dialogue this is this is the you character but in the game in the universe of the game you are totally mute the entire time but so that sort of means that there's an argument to be made that of uh, those two female characters are probably the main characters because you the actual protagonist are a complete blank slate of a character so yeah yeah the game the game the game is pretty good uh, and he really draws out a lot of the riches and depth in it so yeah i i wanted to make that point about about gender because the book does a good job teasing it out and i had never even really considered it before that most video games are really bad on that front and this one is actually pretty good well that's what i found a lot when it comes to like children and gender like just about everything for children is created by adults obviously and they come in with their own prejudices and you know ideas but little kids don't have that as innately as we first thought like now we're seeing little boys like pretty little they have to be like not 10 year olds but maybe five-year-olds dressing up as ray from star wars which is amazing that's great or even wonder woman Mm -hmm. um and like my little boy, his favorite book is called uh, Shark Lady. <laughs> nice. And it's about the Eugenie, I don't have her last name, but she was the kind of the first big female marine biologist and she did a lot of research into sharks. Now, he probably loves it because there's a lot of pictures of sharks in it, but he will now always know that women can be marine biologists. And that will never seem like when he imagines a marine biologist, he'll probably picture a woman. And that's great. You know, if you just put the women where little kids can see them, they won't think it's weird. (laughs) So we're going to end with uh, you will suggest a book that I might enjoy and I will suggest a book that you might enjoy. Why don't you start? Uh... Geez, did you ever read Persuasion? I have not read Persuasion. I have read. Oh, you have to read Persuasion. I read Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, and Emma. Oh. <laughs> so. No, 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 no. Okay, actually, well, the, I'll make it official because it seems like you did not read two of the best Jane Austens. It's true. Yeah, um, Persuasion. I don't even know how to classify it. It's much shorter than her other books. Okay. And uh, it's it's a fantastic romance um, in a very cynical sort of way. And uh, sensibility is a lot like Pride and Prejudice, um, but just a little bit nicer. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, the the protagonists are not so unlikable. Okay. Um, I know a lot of people have great love for Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, but I don't think I'd like to have dinner with either of them. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I love that book, they're not good people. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing. I can remember reading Pride and Prejudice and... It was uh, around the time when Austin Mania was very, very strong in culture, which it, this is the thing that ebbs and flows. It's it's never really left yeah. us, but it was strong at the time. And a lot of the l- 
straight boys in the English program who many of them are friends who I love, but a lot of them really bought into the whole masculinist bullshit like Bukowski and Hemingway and drinking your whiskey and whatever. And they all hated Jane Austen. And I was like, y'all are wrong because Jane Austen (laughs) is not like she is not like uh, uncritical about anything. She is sharp Mm -hmm. and funny. And this is satire. (laughs) Well, there's a reason she never got married herself, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to bring that up and to talk about gender a little bit more. Um, How many girls buy into pride and prejudice, or I should say women, girls and women as a, like buy into pride and prejudice as a romance. Mm -hmm. It's not. I mean, that is less worrying than when someone does the same thing to Wuthering Heights. (laughs) Yeah, Wuthering Heights is really (laughs) Wuthering Heights is basically a portrait of a series of very toxic relationships. Yeah, and I mean, I can totally see wanting to marry Colin Firth. Mm -hmm. He's gorgeous, especially in that, you know, miniseries. But you don't actually want to marry Mr. Darcy. (laughs) He's terrible. Bingley seems nicer. Sure, go for Bingley. So yeah, I would I would recommend Persuasion and Sense and Sensibility to you then. Yeah, so for you, you've read Mrs. Dalloway, right? Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. There's a guy, there's a, a really smiley, friendly guy at my gym in his mid to late twenties, I should say. Uh, he's a powerlifter because I go to a powerlifting gym. So he's he's a big burly guy, big beard, big bushy hair, like big wall of a man. We were in the uh, we happened to be in the locker room at the same time one day, and he knows that I was doing a PhD in English, and he asks me for a book recommendation, which always makes me nervous. Yeah. When a stranger asks, I don't mind if it's someone I know quite well because I know them, but when a stranger asks, you're like, okay. So I was like, I don't know anything about what books you like, so tell me the kinds of books you like. And I'm cringing. I'm I'm just oh god, because I'm expecting to hear one of two things. Either it's gonna be like Ayn Rand or something, or it's gonna be like some like um low grade dicklet, like you like Tom fucking Clancy or something. I don't know. And he starts like he loves Camus and Sartre and like, oh, Okay. There you go. <laughs> All right. I can work with this. Starting on a high mm-hmm. level. Um, and it's it's because he reads for the same reason he works out. He wants to better his mind. See, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, like it seems to me like you really like modernism, but I'm I've not really heard any women authors. So have you read anything by Virginia Woolf? And he hadn't. So I said, and he's like, she's like a Victorian. I'm like, no. Nope. <laughs> she is very much not a Victorian. Uh, and I was like, I am going to direct you to Mrs. Dalloway. And he went out that night and bought it. I saw him at the gym a few days later, and he rushed over to me. He was about 90 pages in, and it was blowing his mind. That's wonderful. That's great. A few days later, I saw him again, and he was like, he was like, you. He was like, (laughs) apparently, (laughs) like, he had not realized what he was in for, because the book had just leveled him. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, I'm sorry that I dropped a nuclear bomb on you. (laughs) <laughs> you did ask for some challenging literature, but he, he was so thankful that he had read it and like it had blown his mind, but it had just emotionally destroyed him as well. I felt like I had done a good service. <laughs> you had. Well, you're now you can be like his literature dealer, you know, like just <laughs> right. doling it out. Look, come to me when you want the strong stuff. <laughs> so um, let me think. A book for you. Have you read the Penelope ad? No. Oh, there we I- go. Okay. Yeah, I should. I actually recently read uh, Sir- that Circe by Madeline Miller, kind of a modern retelling. So this is kind of alongside with that. The Penelope ad is really short. It's really breezy. It's really fun. It's chatty. Uh, and uh, I went into it expecting not to like it, even though I generally do enjoy Margaret Atwood, and I loved it. 
uh, I, it's now been about four years ago that I read it, but it really surprised me. Uh, it, it does a lot in a very short space of time, and it's really enjoyable. So there we go. That's for you. Wicked. I'm putting that on hold at my li- local library right Wonderful. now. Wonderful. <laughs> Great. Well, I guess all that remains to do is to thank the listeners and say bye. Oh, okay. Well, thank you to listeners. I suppose they're out there. Our husbands will listen. <laughs> exactly. There will be at least two. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure. Dear Reader is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. You can find the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash reader slash one. You can tweet at Emily or myself at Dear Reader FM. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.